We're in Mark's Gospel, and we've reached uh, chapter 11 and verse 27, but I'm going to read a section uh, slightly earlier than that from verse 15 of chapter 11. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And now verse 27 over the page. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven, then he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening and ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to respond to your message. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, I wonder if any of you can tell me where this is. I'm kind of stood in the way of it. Any of you can tell me where this is or maybe what it's called? Ah, there's a man who knows what he's talking about. Now, the answer you just heard shouted out there was Sealand. The, the, the tower behind me is actually, it was originally called Ruff's Tower, and it was an offshore platform in the North Sea. It was um, roughly 12 kilometres off the coast of Suffolk, and it was a disused sea fort. It was built as a defensive gun platform during the Second World War. But as we've heard from our educated friend, it has another name too. Since 1967, the decommissioned Ruff's Tower has been occupied by the family and associates of a man called Paddy Roy Bates. And in 1975, Bates took the rather bold step of pronouncing this tower as being its own sovereign state. And he named it Sealand. He wrote a national constitution and he pronounced himself Prince Roy of Sealand. Very regal sounding, I'm sure you'll agree. Now, Sealand has never been officially recognised as a state by any other nation state, and it doesn't fall within the definition of a state under public international law. But that didn't stop Prince Roy. Since the writing of the Constitution of Sealand, it now has its own flag and its own national anthem. 
It has its own currency, which is, well, according to Prince Roy, pegged to the value of the US dollar. And it even has its own passport system. Prince Roy passed away in 2012, and his son and heir is now Prince Michael of Sealand. As an aside, my cousin and I once discussed uh, launching an invasion of Sealand using his three-man fishing dinghy, and we decided that if we were successful, we'd have to rename it Papa New Gilmer. Alas, (laughs) it's yet to happen. But what's the point in me telling you this? Well, it's to illustrate the fact that just because someone claims to have authority, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have it. Prince Roy pronounced himself to be the head of a nation-state, But on the basis of any objective criteria, he had no real authority to do so. He was no more a prince than I am Prince Johnny of Papua New Gilmer. His authority lacked legitimacy. And in the passage of Mark's gospel that we're going to look at this evening, it is just this issue that is front and centre. It's about legitimate authority. More specifically, it's about the legitimacy of Jesus' authority. What gave Jesus the right to do what he did and to say what he said? We're in the middle of a series during Sunday evenings in Mark chapters 11 to 13. And in this part of Mark's account of the life of Jesus, Jesus has just arrived in Jerusalem. And his arrival was the arrival of a long-awaited king. But shortly after he arrived in Jerusalem... He caused quite a stir. We read about it earlier on. He'd entered temple courts, and for want of a better phrase, he'd kicked off. He flipped tables over, he threw chairs around, and he generally got very, very angry. And for the council of religious leaders who'd been looking on, who'd witnessed Jesus' behavior, well, his behavior in the temple is the final straw. He'd rubbed them up the wrong way before, of course, but this is their home turf. And quite frankly, Jesus is trampling all over it. So after Jesus kicks off in the temple, Mark told us in verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard all that Jesus was saying, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. Not to disprove him, not to clarify what he thought he was doing, not even to rebuke him, to destroy him. And that is strong stuff. And it's with those words ringing in our ears that we read this little section for this evening, where the very next day, the religious leaders approach Jesus and ask him this question, by what authority do you do these things? Or who gave you authority to do them? Now, it might seem like a fairly innocuous question on its own, but when we know what's come before, we know the motive behind it is not innocuous at all. And while the scribes and the priests might ask the question with an ulterior motive, it is just this question that Mark wants his readers to be asking of themselves. Who gave Jesus the right to do what he did and to say what he said? That's the question we're going to be considering this evening. And as I hope we'll see, the question that the Sanhedrin ask of Jesus, it might initially seem a wee bit removed from us, but at its root, it is ridiculously close to the bone. Whether you would call yourself a Christian or whether you wouldn't, 
So let's get ourselves into the text. Could take the picture down now. Thank you. You'll see three headings on the back of your service sheet that will hopefully help us to get our heads around what's going on here. So firstly, who gave you the right? It's a question that is relevant to us. Now, as I've already mentioned, context is really, really important in this passage. Because when we first read it, the encounter that Jesus had with these religious leaders, well, it actually just seems like a little bit of an awkward little exchange, doesn't it? I wonder if you thought that too. A group of people asked Jesus a question. Jesus answers it by asking them a question. They kind of fluff the answer a little bit. And Jesus tells them, well, I'm not going to answer your question. It's not exactly the slickest of exchanges, isn't it? And it's quite hard to work out what's going on. But I want you to notice what it is that the religious leaders focus in on. What is it they actually ask in? Verse 27. By what authority are you doing these things? Now we know that their intent is to destroy Jesus. And here they choose to challenge him on the source of his authority. Not to rebuke him for making a mess of the temple. Not even to have him escorted from the temple in case he does it again. Remember, this is the very next day. But to challenge him on the source of his authority. Why? Well, as we saw last week, when Jesus trashed the temple, when he kicked off, it wasn't just an act of mindless vandalism. He was making a point. And that point was that while things looked rosy in the temple... Well, it looked on the surface like people are devoted to God. They're serving him. They're offering him the right sacrifices. In reality, people weren't that fussed with what God had to say at all. And that was a very, very bold thing to tell anyone. Never mind the religious leaders in the temple. They are in the natural position of authority. They're the religious ruling class. Jesus is an itinerant preacher. He's not someone with the backing of any formal Jewish religious institution. And yet he waltzed into the temple like he owned the place. He spoke to them as if he was in charge. And the religious leaders did not like it one little jot. And the problem didn't even stop there. Because for all that Jesus caused a right stir in the temple, he wasn't just written off by the crowds, the onlooking crowds, as an attention seeker, as a troublemaker, or as even being just a little bit unhinged. Mark tells us that the Sanhedrin wanted to destroy Jesus because, verse 18, they feared him for all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So not only has he publicly rebuked the religious leaders, but all the people, the crowds who are looking on, the same people who ought to be kowtowing to these religious leaders, they're astonished at his teaching. It looks like they're on his side. So when the scribes ask him this question, the tone isn't gently inquisitive, as it might read to us. Think more along the lines of, who do you think you are? What... What gives you the right to challenge us? That's the sort of thing we're dealing with here. Now, it's easy for us to read this and to kind of wag our fingers at the power-hungry religious leaders. And we can kind of set the religious leaders up in Mark and actually in the rest of the Gospels as being kind of like pantomime baddies. 
because they seem to disappear off into corners and they kind of rub their hands together and they plot. And they're always trying hard to foil our hero, but they're always one step behind him. And if that's the case, then, well, we're cheering Jesus on. We're on his side, aren't we? Well, there's no doubt that Jesus is exposing abuse of power in God's church. And we'll see that more clearly next week as we look at Mark 12. But I want us to see this evening that the fact that Jesus had real authority to do what he did and to say what he said, both in the temple and throughout his ministry, confronts you and me as much as it did the scribes. As Robin phrased it this morning, we have to turn the spotlight back onto us. Because the reason that these religious leaders ask Jesus about the source of his authority is that if he really has the right to rebuke them, if he really does speak for God, then that completely undermines their position. And the crowds loving what Jesus says shows that their grip on power is slipping, it's weakening. So for them, the whole thing's a power struggle. It's all about autonomy, about control. Their authority as the final word on religious matters. Well, it's slipping away and they can see it going. And that's why this is so strongly applicable to you and to me. Because at the very heart of the message of Jesus is a direct assault on your autonomy, on your authority on your control, not control over the temple, but over your own life. See, the God who made you and the God who loves you is the rightful king of your life. He's the one who ought to set the agenda with the decisions you make, with the way you live your life. And yet every day, in thought, in deed, in decision, you and I make ourselves God. And we know it when we examine ourselves honestly. I reserve that ultimate position of authority, of control for myself. And God, well, what's he got to do with it? What gave him the right? So when we look at this group of religious leaders feeling threatened by the authority of Jesus, it throws a bit of a mirror up to ourselves. Because while the Bible shows us that God is good, that he loves us more than we can possibly know, and that he has every right to be king of our lives, we still find ourselves asking him this question. By what authority? Who gave you the right to tell me how to live my own life? And it's a reason that many people reject Jesus completely, outright reject him. And even if you'd call yourself a Christian, the issue might be more localized, but it is live and kicking. We'll see that fleshed out a little bit later on. But at this stage, I just want us to grasp that this exchange isn't just an abuse of religious authority issue. Jesus isn't just sticking it to the man. He is doing that. But it's not just that. It's an autonomy issue, a control issue, and it is absolutely relevant to you and to me. So, if that's the case, what response does Jesus make to this challenge? Well, point number two, a question which is kind of answered by Jesus. Verse 30, Jesus responds to uh, the religious leaders. 
was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, that doesn't seem like much of an answer, does it? I'm not sure about you, but when I first read through this passage, the question I was asking myself was, one, what on earth does John the Baptist have to do with anything? And two, what kind of answer is this? Because it seems like a bit of a random name drop at best. And at worst, Jesus throwing a question out in response, well, it seems like a bit of a smokescreen. It looks like he's trying to avoid the question, doesn't it? We've just had a general election. Lots of interviews of politicians on the television and everywhere. And this seems like a textbook politician's answer, doesn't it? Divert the subject to another topic and hope to goodness that the interviewer doesn't press the point. But there's a reason for Jesus dropping John the Baptist into the mix here. He's not avoiding the question. Because John the Baptist appears a couple of times during Mark's gospel. But the time where the greatest emphasis is placed on John's baptism, not just on John, but on John's baptism, is right at the very beginning of Mark. And if you've got your Bible to hand, turn back with me to Mark chapter 1. I'm reading from verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And then look down to verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So this is John. This is the one who Jesus asks the scribes about in chapter 11. John's job was to herald the coming of Jesus. And the very first time we meet Jesus in Mark's gospel is when John baptizes him. But what's really interesting is what actually happens when John baptizes Jesus. Read verse 10. And when he, that's Jesus, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So as John baptizes Jesus, sorry, as John baptizes Jesus, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in a very, very visible way. And God the Father announces exactly who Jesus is. He is his son. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in Mark's gospel, from the point of John baptizing him, Jesus' ministry is legitimized. It is given the full weight and authority of God the Father. And in fact, when you look at it that way, it's John's ministry that's legitimated by Jesus. It's John's prophecy about the coming Messiah that's shown to be true right there and then. Well, so what? Why is that important? Well, think back to our old pal, Prince Roy of Sealand. He claimed to be sovereign over Sealand. But did that claim in itself make him sovereign? He could say what he liked. He could draft his own constitution and his laws, and he could govern Ruff's Tower as his own kingdom. He could wear a crown if he even wanted to. But when push came to shove, what right did he actually have to govern anyone? Well, none. 
And the same thing could be said of Jesus. Jesus did act in in an authoritative way. He cleared the temple and he taught in a way like no one else taught. But if Jesus' authority is from man, if he's nothing more than a moral teacher with a quick wit, then he had no right to do what he did in the temple. And for that matter, he has no right to speak into your life and mine. I'll say that again. If Jesus is nothing more than a man, if his authority comes from men, then he has no real authority over your life and over mine. But that is not the Jesus that Mark or that any of the other gospel writers show us. Mark wants his his readers to see that Jesus' authority has the full weight, the full legitimacy that comes from the creator of the universe, from God the Father, And he says it right at the beginning of his gospel. That's why he starts it the way he does. So in answer to this question from the scribes, Jesus, what gives you the right to speak to us the way you do? And the answer to our question, just what gives you the right to tell me how to live my life? Well, this does. His authority comes from God. So, how do the scribes respond to that? Well, let's look at our last point, thirdly, an answer which has personal implications. Now, you might think that I've been a little bit harsh on the religious leaders so far, because as we sit here on a Sunday evening, it's far easier for us to kind of unpick the text of Mark and work out exactly what Mark wants his readers to pick up. For the religious leaders, it's not quite so easy. And at the end of their little exchange with Jesus here in verse 33, Jesus tells them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So explicitly, he's not giving them an answer. Although we can see that Mark was pointing us towards this John the Baptist reference, it wasn't meant to be a conclusive outright answer to the scribe's question. So maybe I'm just being a wee bit harsh on them. Let's see how they respond to Jesus. Verse 31. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So their reasoning goes something like this. Right, guys, we didn't exactly welcome John with open arms when he came preaching about the coming of God's Messiah. So if we now turn around and say that he was a prophet from God, then we're going to look like hypocrites, aren't we? But on the other hand... Well, John was so popular among the people. I'm afraid they're going to turn on us if we say that that he really wasn't from God. They think they're backed into a corner. They're caught between a rock and a hard place. But I want us to notice the really important thing about this little team talk they have. And it's actually what they don't say at all. As they're weighing up the pros and cons of each answer, no one mentions where they really thought John the Baptist's baptism was from. Do you notice that? Truth doesn't actually come into the matter at all. They discuss the personal ramifications of admitting that John was from God or admitting that he wasn't from God. But there's absolutely no concern for the real answer to the question. For the religious leaders, the legitimacy of Jesus' authority is not a question of truth. 
It's a question of self-preservation. Which of these answers leads to the best outcome for us? So maybe I'm not being so harsh on the scribes. Because their response to this question shows what they're really concerned about. Not about truth. Not about whether this really is God's king and whether we should bow the knee. But about self-preservation. About guarding their own authority, their own autonomy. And where does that leave us this evening? Well, I remember when I was at university, uh, I was in halls and I had really, really good conversations with one of my friends in halls about Jesus. And he was really taken with the person of Jesus. We read the Bible together and he found him to be really compelling, really engaging, really attractive character. And we kind of danced around the issue for quite a few months until we kind of got to a point where I had to ask him outright, mate, why is it you're so reluctant to become a Christian? And he said these words, and I remember them ridiculously clearly. He said these words, I just don't think that I can yield control over my life to someone else. I'll say that again. I just don't think that I can yield control over my life to someone else. That sentence cuts right to the heart of what's going on here. This kind of rejection of Jesus isn't a truth issue. It's not a matter of apologetics, of giving the right answers. At its root is an autonomy issue, a control issue. Accepting that Jesus was the Son of God, accepting that he was God's King, accepting that his authority is legitimate, means yielding your life to the control of someone else. King Jesus. So you might find yourself in the shoes of my friend. Maybe you think that it was quite possible Jesus was who he claimed to be. But you don't want to embrace him because it means yielding control to someone else. Submitting to Jesus might feel as though you're giving something up. Feel as though you're losing your freedom. Well, the truth that Marx wants us to get from these chapters is that Jesus is God's king. Jesus has God's authority. He has every right to speak into your life. But he is not a domineering despot. He loves you. And to show just how much he loves you, despite the fact that he's God's king, he's God's chosen Messiah, the scribes finally get their way. And a while after this short exchange in the temple... Jesus submitted himself to a humiliating death on a cross. But he wasn't destroyed. He rose again to bring you and me into his kingdom. That's how trustworthy he is. Embracing the cross of Jesus as your only hope and yielding your life to him is good It's not losing your freedom. It is good because he is good. And maybe you are a Christian and for you, the truth of what Jesus said and the truth of what Jesus did is not much of an issue at all. Maybe you're quite happy to submit to Jesus and how you use your time. You're maybe quite involved in things here at Chalmers. And your moral framework, well, that's thoroughly shaped by the Bible. But for you, Oh, well, money's just a bit of an issue. 
After all, what gives him the right to tell me how to spend my money? It was me who earned it. Or whatever the issue is, it could be sexuality, it could be money, it could be job, it could be family. What gives him the right to tell me what I can and cannot do? Submitting to the authority of Jesus means that you are his now. And that means every area of your life, the whole caboodle. There are so many areas in our lives where it's so easy to balk at submitting to Jesus and we cling to our own authority, but he is God's king, his authority is legitimate, and he ought to be setting the agenda. And in light of this, as I just touched on, in the light of this whole section that points to Jesus as being king, God's king, then him going to the cross is absolutely astounding. This Jesus is God's king. And that makes the lengths he would go to to bring you and me back to himself, bring you and me into his kingdom. Just incredible. It's time to bow the knee to our Lord and to our Savior. Let's pray. Lord God, we are weak. We are broken people. And we so often choose to go our own way. No matter how much we know that it ultimately doesn't satisfy us, we make ourselves king, we make ourselves God, we give ourselves ultimate authority. And Lord, this evening as we're confronted with the authority of your son Jesus, help us to bow the knee before the one who is the legitimate king, your king, and help us to live as followers of him. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen.